Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Dan Genter. All right, he's a CEO, CIO, chairman of this uh, RNC Genter Capital Management. That's all good, and we'll get to the markets there. He's also a graduate of the University of Southern California. It's like California Day. I know. So I have to ask the question, Dan, and maybe you don't have an opinion, but Southern Cal and UCLA are leaving the Pac-12 for the Big Ten. What are you guys thinking? You know, I don't know what they're thinking. Because it's, uh, you know, we, we the, the Pac-10 has always been, you know, very, very competitive. Uh, I think they just kind of don't like the way it's being run. And, and, and look, when you look at the domination of college football here in America, certainly the SEC has dominated. They don't have any chance to go that way, but they can move a little further east, get a little more integrated. And I think they're just trying to increase the level of play and, frankly, get a little more competitive with regards to being able to recruit new players. So I think that's the strategy. You know, we'll, we're going to have to travel a little further to go to games. All right, but, I'll tell you this. Hey, I'm excited. We're, we're I'm going to get uh, – I will buy Dan a ticket to a Rutgers game in New Brunswick, <laughs> New Jersey. Money says he doesn't show up, though. I mean, they're not going to travel to, you know, Champagne. What does it mean for the Rose Bowl? I don't know. I don't know. The world's coming to an end. I don't know, guys, but you, but, but, you know, you, you offer some champagne, maybe some good whiskey, and uh, I think we've we got a bet going here. He's on board. He's on, He's board. on board. All right. <laughs> hey, Dad, we've had a rocky few days here, a rocky 2022. What are you telling your clients here as, uh, boy, you know, um, Mr. Powell is certainly making good on his interest rate rise regime? Yeah, you know, gentlemen, we've, I've been doing this for 43 years, and uh, despite the fact of how much everybody tries, we're just dealing with a very, very classic, you can't fight the Fed situation. And, and we can, you know, talk about all the theories behind that, but the basic reality is, is that when you're, when you're significantly increasing the cost of capital, you're going to adjust P.E. ratios, and that's exactly what we're seeing. I mean, this is, this is not an earnings issue. You know, the economy really is fairly solid across the board, which is also, I think, what's confusing people. But, you know, when, but when you're going to compress margins and you're going to compress earnings and you have this kind of uncertainty, you know, that's why we're sitting at a 16.5 PE right now. And it's going to be, even though the earnings, you know, look, we're going to be up 9% next year based upon projections at about uh, 243, and we're doing pretty well this year. So this really is not an earnings economic issue it's a it's a consolidation issue you know based upon cost of capital and there's not uh, a near-term end in sight in that you don't think that strategists are going to have to bring down 
earnings expectations um, into next year? I mean, Morgan Stanley and Bank of America are already warning that because of this interest rate environment, they're going to have to, uh, you know, analysts are going to have to continue to bring the bar, lower the bar. I think they're going to have to, but but the uncertainty is that nobody knows where because the same thing was said about this year. Yet we're still really on track to be two thirty this year, you know, because you you people have they've raised prices. You've actually not had that much margin compression just because they've been able to raise prices and revenues have actually gone up about fourteen percent. So I think that's really where people keep trying to fight this back, saying, "Hey, what what is the Fed seeing that we're not seeing? Is that mm. things just don't look that bad?" And then when the Fed comes out like Powell did and doubles down and saying, well, you know, we don't really care. We're going to keep slamming on the brake here, and, and you better be careful. Have your seatbelt on, and all the luggage that's not strapped down to the back is going to come flying forward. Well, so that's what people are looking at. Well, they can. I mean, the Fed can continue to raise rates as long as we're looking at 3.5% unemployment, right? As long as jolts numbers come in the way they did today, as long as the economy feels like it's smooth sailing, um, you know, the contraction and growth in the first and second quarter notwithstanding. Um, this is why I don't get how come so many on the buy side don't take the Fed at its word. Why are so many people who have been, you know, you're in the market for 43 years. Uh, Paul and I had lunch with a guy who's been in this market for 20, 30 years. I know some very big fund managers who've been in this market for 30 or 40 years, and they're all fighting the Fed. They don't believe uh, Powell's narrative, and they think they're going to have to cut in 2023. Well, look, the Fed has a long-term history of basically trying to, you know, walk back the economy. And I think for a lot of veterans, they, they're not convinced that they're not trying to do that. You know, I think they're becoming more convinced, and certainly the comments this, uh, this week, which I mentioned kind of doubled down, is that, hey, our foot's on the brake, and we're going to keep pushing harder. And, and people are they are finally getting the message that that's going to happen, and the concern is that they're going to over that they're just going to overdo it. You mentioned USC. You know, one of my professors at USC's business school was Art Laffer, and one of the things that Art always said is, "Be careful the bullets that you shoot out there, because you're not going to know where they hit the target for nine to twelve months, and by the time you know where it's hitting the target, if the target gets shattered." Then you got another nine months before you can try to put up a new target and correct it. And so that's what's concerning people right now is to say, hey, are they just overdoing it to get inflation numbers down so they can post that? And what we're going to do is now they're going to take what's a pretty good economy, drive it into a recession, and then we're going to see earnings really come down. All right, Dan, 30 seconds. Give us your pitch on ENB. I know it's a name you like. Well, look, the energy space and the utilities are the only thing that's positive for the year. Uh, we, even though it's having a rough day today, we think it's going to continue. And it's, uh, it has the largest North American infrastructure midstream as the biggest gas utility in Canada. You've got a 6.2% yield while you wait at only an 18 PE. It's a good place to, you know, to, to hang out and make some money while you wait this out. Energy. Love it. It's having its time in the sun. And they like healthcare, Gilead. Yeah, I know. They're all over that stuff. We'll, we'll talk to Dan about that next time. Dan Genter, CEO, CIO, and chairman of RNC Genter Capital Management. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. 
All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk about the independent financial advisor business. That is a huge business as more and more uh, advisors uh, become independent and they're out there uh, gathering assets and managing those assets, uh, dealing with the changing technologies not the, and as well as the changing markets. Natalie Wolfson, CEO of AssetMark, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Natalie, just take us a couple seconds. Just tell us what you do at AssetMark and how to help these financial advisors. Thanks so much. Well, at Asimark, what we do is we provide technology, investments, due diligence, and servicing and support for financial advisors so that financial advisors at all sizes can compete. Um, if they need uh, you know, support as it relates to how they talk to clients or uh, the technology they use, they can come to Asimark and uh, we help them uh, provide those services to their clients. It's very cool. You know, in the past, if I needed a financial advisor, I probably would have chosen somebody from New York and they have a ton of overhead and I would have paid a bigger fee. But now, because everything's by Zoom anyway, I have a financial advisor in Granville, Ohio, and I meet with him over Zoom and he uses these kind of products to show me everything, you know, in real time. Um, you also, though, supply household, investor households with technology, right? What's it's a much bigger uh, number in terms of, um, you know, the customers. What's what's that product? Yeah, so we serve uh, 8,700 independent financial advisors and about 220,000 households. And wow. those households are served by the independent financial advisors, by the 8,700 independent fin uh, financial advisors. So, so that's counted in your platform assets, which is like $80 billion or something. That's right, $82 billion as of June uh, of this year. And what we do is we provide advisors with technology, and those advisors need technology to have great conversations with their clients. Clients want to see their portfolios. They want to engage with their financial plans. They want to ask questions about what's happening with their portfolios, especially in markets like this. And the technology and the services and the diligence that AssetMark provides uh, helps the financial advisors deliver those services to investors. So for you, when you're engaging with your financial plan, you're probably doing it over a Zoom meeting through technology that shows you different scenarios. What happens if fixed income comes off a little bit more? What happens if uh, equities are depressed for the remainder of the year? What, what happens if my daughter goes to college in America <laughs> or for happens? free in Spain? Oh, really? Whoa, yeah. It's, it's a hugely different scenario. It is. <laughs> it is. And our technology would help your financial advisor have that conversation with you. What are the financial advisors? I, I, w I wonder how your, your business and the business of independent financial advisors changed during the pandemic? The business of uh, delivering advice changed fundamentally during the pandemic. Um, overnight, 
financial advisors and their clients were forced to adopt technology and technology enriches the conversation. And it was very, very quickly after uh, the pandemic started that financial advisors started to realize that you can have in many cases, better conversations when the, the data is interactive. And so going back to your conversation with your financial advisor, if you are worried about a particular, particular market scenario or you're interested in understanding the difference in your ability to retire if your daughter goes to school in Spain or goes to school in the <laughs> United States, you can make those adjustments in real time using technology. And so what financial advisors have seen is while the one-on-one -on -one interpersonal conversations are still important and powerful, the ongoing conversations to make sure you're on track, to make sure your portfolio is doing what you uh, intended to, to do, that's better served um, online and through technology. I, I, I feel like there must have been two big changes, right? On the one hand, you had um, a lot of business happening remotely or happening over um, fiber. And on the other hand, you had a huge resurgence in interest, right? Because of stimmies and meme stocks and Wall Street bets in investing. And so even, you know, non Wall Street bets board members were were saying, hey, let me look at how I can make money in this market, how I can move my assets, right? So is that is that part of the growth as well? I, I noticed you spent time at Charles Schwab, which must be a huge beneficiary of that as well. Yeah, you know, speaking of, of Charles Schwab, they they um, printed a report about the next generation of investors. And one thing that's incredibly exciting about this generation or this uh, this generation of investors is they're extremely excited about investing. Um, in fact, 15% of all investors started investing post-2020. And so this generation... That's huge, by the way. Repeat huge. that. 15% of new investors started investing post 2020 and wow. they started investing yep. in new asset classes. So whether it's Bitcoin or NFTs or they, they, they um, gravitated towards Robinhood because of fractional shares, they're interested and excited about saving in that way. Now, the last year has been pretty tough for those investors. Yep. Uh, doesn't stem their overall interest though and their excitement about investing makes them think about investing differently and that's where advice comes in you don't have to be all or nothing as it relates to a particular type of investment all in bitcoin all in GameStop. Stocks. yeah exactly. <laughs> maybe i should get a financial advisor instead oh that financial advisor uses your software exactly <laughs> exactly all right exactly. natalie great stuff really appreciate you coming into our bloomberg interactor broker studio uh that's a sponsored job there you go uh ceo of asset mark they're based in concord uh, california uh, good stuff. And she is a product, Matt, of the California University System, the undergrad at Berkeley, MBA from UCLA. That's pretty good. Professor Scott Galloway at NYU, he says one of the greatest benefits he ever received in his life was being born in the state of California because then he can get the great education from the UC. Great academics and great football. Yeah, and not a bad beach. Elon Musk, Twitter, the saga continues. He cited the, the recent accusations from a Twitter whistleblower as a new reason to terminate the $44 billion takeover of the social media platform. Does this have any more uh, value than perhaps the initial termination letter, which focused on the bots? I don't know. But Dan Ives, he follows this stuff uh, on Wall Street. He's a managing director and senior equity analyst at Wedbush Securities. Hey, Dan, as you and you know your institutional investor clients look at this latest news, from Musk talking about the the whistleblower. What do you guys make of it? Well, I think it gives Musk a leg to stand on going into Delaware court in October. 
I mean, for Musk, it's essentially like a kid in Christmas morning finding something under the tree because Twitter had an ironclad case going into court. And I think this does change the calculus. Really? And I think you're seeing that reflect in Twitter stock. I mean, it doesn't. I, I read this whole uh, report. He doesn't say anything that I wouldn't have known was true before Elon Musk made the offer or during or after. I mean, the idea that there are too many bots on Twitter, we all knew that two years ago, last year, a month ago, next month. Like, none of of this stuff is new. I feel like Elon Musk just spouts off on social media about stuff he's going to do. He's going to take his company private for 420 or he's going to you know, pump up Dogecoin or he's going to make a cyber truck or he's going to buy Twitter. He doesn't mean any of it. Look, and I think finally his he really finds himself between a rock and a hard place because legally speaking, Twitter has a very strong stand going into Delaware court. And I think Musk sees the writing on the wall. And that's why you know, I think this is all a game of high stakes poker in some sort of renegotiation with Twitter because he's basically going to find himself either needing to buy Twitter in terms of being forced by the courts of 5420 or a massive settlement. And that's really where the Zacco situation, you know, has really been something where I think he at least has a small victory and he's definitely trying to pounce on mm-hmm. it. Well, for those that are interested in this story, I recommend a column yesterday on the Bloomberg terminal by Matt Levine. Um, and it's Matt Levine's money stuff, which I read every day because they're always awesome. And then he's been following this situation very closely. And you can get that at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or N-I-O-P-I or O-P-I-N go on the, the terminal. Uh, it's really a good take on it. And by the way, he doesn't and he was an M&A lawyer at Wachtell. So he knows this kind of stuff cold. And he says it ain't going to happen for Mr. Musk here. All right, Dan, more importantly, you know, if I'm a Twitter shareholder and you're as close to this story as any from a Wall Street perspective, what's your call on Tesla right here? Does this noise around Twitter affect your call or maybe what some investors feel about this Tesla story? Yeah, I think it started to be decoupled from the Tesla stock because of the situation where Musk has changed his loan and he's already sold stock and that's been a clear overhang on tesla stock now with that said it's been a black eye for musk and as a tesla holder you just want this to end this nightmare soap opera because in a risk-off market the last thing you need is just another reason to sell tesla does he keep selling his shares i mean he says it seems like he says every time he sells them that that's it that's the last time but is he going to keep reducing his stake well, guys, of now he says it's done, but as you said, it's the boy that cried wolf, and that continues to be a frustration for Tesla investors, although ultimately for Tesla, it's fundamentally that, that I think what ultimately drives the stock higher, and I think it's all about China, and I think that sort of overrode some of the, I'll say, dark clouds caused by the Twitter situation. By the way, Tesla just uh, achieved a new lap record at Sebring. Tell us about they, they continually break records in terms of um, the speed and performance and distance um, that electric cars can achieve. This is something that no one can dispute. Elon Musk continues to defy um, the big incumbent automakers. Uh, you would expect Volkswagen or GM and Ford to be able to 
use their resources, knowledge of production and, and uh, you know, giant market position to, to beat Tesla, but they, they can't do it so far. What is it, Dan, that makes, um, t- what, what is it that allows Tesla, you know, battery vehicles um, to drive further and faster and, and in some sense is better than anyone else? Yeah, look, it's a great point, and that's really why Tesla has really dominated the EV industry. It's it's not just battery technology, but I think in terms of what they've built at Fremont, at Giga, and they continue to replicate the scale, because they're able to do it from a scale perspective and as well as the battery technology. That's been the combo that's enabled them, despite all competition, despite all the sort of the skeptics, to continue now to be on a trajectory next year to be on 2 million vehicles. It's so crazy because I get into like an Audi e-tron, right? Yep. And it's luxurious and it's also familiar because it's very Audi-like. And then um, on the Autobahn, when I'm running out of battery power at, you know, 150 miles in, I'm thinking, (laughs) man, I wish I was in a Tesla right now. And I don't know how they can come out with a vehicle that doesn't outperform a Tesla. I mean, they're Audi. I know. It's well. That's the Tesla gig there. Hey, Dan. Most of our listeners know that you cover some of the big, big names out there—the Apples, the Microsofts of the world. Given the volatility that we've seen so far here in 2022, what's your top call right now? Well, our top call is Apple, but because of the iPhone 14 upgrade cycle and our checks in Asia continue to show firm demand, even in the macro that we're seeing, I think it's an underestimated cycle. And that's why this is a stock that I believe powers through the storm. And that continues to be our favorite uh, in, in terms of overall tech filed by Microsoft. And, and what are you hearing on your channel checks? And again, for those listening, a lot of these, a lot of analysts, top analysts like Dan, they really call all the suppliers and get a sense of what's going on out there in the supply chain. What are you hearing? Well, at this point, it's been firm in terms of 90 million orders for iPhone 14, and that's in line with iPhone 13. You know, if there's, you know, when you, when you look at Tim Cook and Apple, they've been able to sort of nail that from a demand perspective. If that trajectory continues to play through, the street's actually going to have to raise numbers on iPhone 14 rather than decline. Hmm, okay. And that's something that's obviously counterintuitive relative to the macro. Speaks to that golden install base yep. of a, a Cupertino. All right, good stuff. As always, Dan Ives, he's a managing director. Senior equity analyst for Wedbush Securities, talking a little Tesla, talking a little Twitter. Uh, it is a never-ending saga there, but we also want to get and Apple. His, top, his top call, which is Apple. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Boy, those are just amazing how strong the housing market held up during uh, the pandemic, the beginning, the middle, the end. And now we're starting to see, see some signs that maybe the uh, residential real estate market is rolling over. To get the latest, we welcome Brad Dillman, chief economist for Cortland. Brad, love to get your thoughts. We've had the Case-Shiller data come out this morning. We had some housing start data last week. Our rising interest rates, rising mortgage rates, they're taking a toll on the real estate market. How do you see this playing out? Finally, uh, you know, seeing this impact from higher rates, you know, we did have sort of a, a false peak in home price appreciation about a year ago, only to see a really strong spring this year. Um, it really shows you, I think, really the effects of the underbuilt environment uh, and then just how accommodative rates were in the past. So what do we expect now? I mean, I've heard um, Mark Zandi from Moody's said that in some local markets, prices could fall 20 percent. Redfin um, recently said that new home buyer purchase agreements are rapidly falling. Black Knight reported the first monthly national declines in home prices. What are we? What are you setting up for? Well, I mean, you know, if you look at homes, home prices, I mean, they're still up, call it eighteen percent year over year, right? They may have fallen slightly month to month. Uh, we may see them come down a bit, and and, and frankly, we should. Um, in my view, the cracks in the housing market are not so much a, a rationalization from where we are today, but really just the out of control home price appreciation that we had seen. Uh, I think there's certainly the possibility that we could see some markets become very illiquid to the degree that they had really been dependent on in migration, that movement of incomes and savings from other parts of the country, and really dependent on, on use of leverage, just to say the low mortgage rates that had prevailed. So, and, you know, unless you, know, you can have individuals who may have gotten over their skis, but I don't think we're on deck for the kind of mass job losses that would result in systemic home price declines. Brad, you mentioned a topic that I've always find interesting, which is the housing shortage here. So when I read the, you know, the quarterly results of the publicly traded home builders, you know, they're they're building the McMansions because that's where the margin is, but that's not necessarily where the demand or need is in some of the entry level housing. How, how do you square those two issues and and, and deal with this American uh, home shortage? Yeah, I mean, so we've had artificial artificially low long-term interest rates really during the, the pandemic. We'd also gone through about of this in 2012, which had really created the underbuilt situation that we had going into the pandemic. Um, so when you have really high prices like that, and you can only really deliver supply on the margin, uh, that's the sweet spot that builders got a target. Now, fortunately, we have seen some movement in this over the last few years. The degree to which long-term rates were low and carrying mortgage rates with them saw such significant home price appreciation that we did see just a lot of single-family housing starts. And so while we're underbuilt by my estimate of about 1 million housing units nationally, and that's housing units of any type, we do have 1.68 million housing units under construction. So in many ways, we're, we're, we're very quickly riding this housing market to the degree that we're, we're underbuilt. One fly in the ointment in that is just what's really happening with, with immigration, both legal and illegal. We're going to need to see those new population figures to know, have we been building enough housing or not? In terms of... Um... Cortland, what you're doing at Cortland, um, 
you have thousands and thousands of homes. You, you do multifamily housing investment. You have hundreds of apartment communities all, all around the U.S. Um, are you seeing price appreciation there? Are you, are you seeing uh, rental units doing well? Yeah, I mean, the rental market's done fantastic uh, coming out of the pandemic. Uh, you've got near 20-year highs in occupancy rates and multifamily in general. They're starting to come down a little bit because there's been double-digit rent growth. Uh, in some parts of the country, like Florida, this has hit highs in some markets of about 30%, uh, which is a very significant real cost of living increase. So multifamily has done incredibly well. We can actually see this reflected in the starts data. So while mortgage rates have gone up, you know, single-family starts have now fallen back to pre-COVID levels. But if you look at starts for structures with five units or more, they're really flirting with 35-year highs. And so I think we can see this in the appeal of both density and also of renting. You know, Brad, during the early days of the pandemic, we had, uh, you know, urban dwellers kind of flee from the cities and I guess, you know, head to Florida, head to Austin, Texas, head to Nashville. Is the perception in your industry that that's kind of a permanent shift? Or are we, are we seeing any data that says, hey, maybe they're coming back? Well, we have seen a, a fairly strong or, you know, urban core rent growth recovery. Uh, and uh, we've also seen really because of this real cost of living increase in, in erstwhile affordable areas that in some respects, urban core submarkets are actually becoming more attractive for the consumer again. Uh, when you square this with with energy prices as well, namely like, you know, the cost of gasoline and, and, the, and the potential that it may go back up again, uh, urban core, more walkable living, this kind of thing becomes a little bit more appealing. There's, a, there's still a lot of money out there for investments um, and not a lot of places to put it right now. Are you seeing institutions get into uh, real estate? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's certainly been at, a, a stronger a strong, level. I mean, I mean, you know, at, at a more rapid pace. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there, there's macro trends at play as well. What I can tell you is that there's been uh, interest from abroad as the dollar has been relatively strong compared to yep. uh, other currencies. So we're seeing foreign institutions uh, move into, uh, the you know, the multifamily space. Right. Um, we're also seeing, of course, uh, continued activity in the single family rental space as well. All right, Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting your perspective. Brad Dillman, chief economist for Cortland, talking about the real estate business maybe peaking. Let's really have a discussion about the global jewelry business, and we can do that. There's nobody better than Alexander Lasik, CEO of Pandora Group. Uh, Alexander, thanks so much for joining us. Boy, I'd love to just get your 30,000-foot view of the global jewelry business kind of Take us from 2019 until here we are today. Yeah, so we could go even further back. Uh, the, the category globally has grown a little bit ahead of GDP for the last 10 years, let's say, up until the pandemic hit. And then the interesting thing happened, of course, when people were locked up at home or, or couldn't go out uh, to kind of uh, go to restaurants, etc. It seemed like the category kind of got a, a nice little boost um, and then, of course, uh, last year, the U.S. government decided to, to issue those stimulus checks, which made, the, in particular, the U.S. Uh, category grow by a whopping 50 percent, uh, which, of course, uh, all the players took advantage of. Uh, coming into this year, then uh, naturally that, that kind of uh, growth is, is nowhere to be found because the stimulus checks are gone. So what we're facing now in the U.S. is a, is a contraction of the category, but still, if I look, for instance, on my business in, in the second quarter of the year, it's down 12% versus the prior year, but it's up almost 60% versus 2019. So it's some kind of strange wow. dynamics going on. But overall, I would say that the, 
globally speaking, the category is, is, is in a good place. What about Europe? I mean, um, I've just moved back to the States from Berlin, um, spent five or six years over there. And of course, Pandora is a household name um, in, in Europe in terms of the, the jewelry business. How hard are you getting hit by higher energy prices that are just uh, draining consumer wallets? Mm. So the first half of this year, we look at things like traffic, you know, conversion rates, basket size, average, uh, you know, price per transaction, et cetera, et cetera. All those retail metrics are, in fact, intact um, across Europe. And, and Europe uh, is actually up double digits in, in the second quarter of this year. Now, again, we, we need to bear in mind that the prior year we had a fair amount of stores closed due to the restrictions of COVID. But if you then back it up versus 19, which is kind of the last, let's call it clean base year from a at least from a financial standpoint, then we're we're up in double digits across uh, the European continent. So again, Pandora is actually faring really well in the in this situation. So it's important. To, I just flew, for example, from Valencia to Frankfurt on Lufthansa. You still have to wear a mask on the flight the whole time. Uh. So Europe is still, in a way, kind of emerging from the pandemic. Here in the U.S., of course, we are, are fully out. Um, and in Asia, you've still got, certainly in China, zero COVID policy. Is that the most difficult market? Mm. By far. I mean, the the Chinese market is as you say, they, they run the zero tolerance policy, which makes it incredibly difficult to, to operate a business there because from one day to the other, they can shut the city like Shanghai, 25 million people, uh, and, and you have no forewarning. So, so it, it, trading in China right now is, I think, is a challenge for not just for us, but for anybody that, that runs an operation out there. Alexander, uh, give us the latest on the supply chain. How has that been a challenge for you? How have you overcome it? What's the current state of your supply chain? Well, if I remember well, when the first news came back, it was at late 19, early 20 of, of this kind of issue in Wuhan. My first thought went to, to our manufacturing sites. We, we are vertically integrated, so we, we produce everything in Thailand. And, and Thailand, in particular, Bangkok is a very popular tourist destination for Chinese. So I feared that, you know, um, that, that we would have issues with our supply chain coming out of Thailand. So we immediately introduced, you know, on our own uh, strict strict rules on how we behave. Um, and, and, and also actually hired another 2,000 people to ramp up our inventory position just in case that, that something would happen. There were, at that time, everything was unknown to all of us. Of course, now we've learned somehow to, to maneuver that. So we've carried a, a higher inventory position throughout the whole pandemic, including up to now. Uh, and that's kind of how we have stayed uh, in stock. So I have zero issues. In fact, my service levels are probably the best they've ever been in Pandora. Really? Good for you. Good for you guys. That seems like uh, that early action uh, worked for you. Talk to us about kind of your storefront business versus your uh, e-commerce business, how the trends there have changed over the last few years, maybe where you're, you know, invest investing going forward. Yeah. So, uh, so when I joined Pandora some three, three and a half years ago, um, e-commerce was not like something that the company has spent an awful lot of energy against, uh, which clearly I had a different point of view on. So we, we started, that was one of the first things we started kind of uh, making sure that our platforms were, were a bit in better shape. The consumer experience was in better shape. And then actually we turned this into more of a full price um, uh, sale uh, environment rather than 
the, the historic way of using this as an outlet somehow. Uh, at the end of the day, I get 10 times as much traffic coming to my website than, than my physical store network. So this needs to be kind of the best the best, best version of Pandora needs to be online in a way, uh, at least visually. So, so we it, we put a lot of effort against that. Then, of course, the pandemic uh, struck, and, and we found ourselves in April. What is it now? Twenty twenty, with ninety, I think ninety five percent of our physical network was shut. I lost that year. I only lost ten percent of my business because I have huge migration coming into the e commerce site. So now. You know, so even in UK, I remember this must have been back in April of, of 20. I was actually growing with my entire physical network down. My business is actually growing year on year, uh, purely through uh, e-com. Now, then everybody said, oh, this is the end of, of retail and everything is going to go online. Is very far from the truth. When when stores reopen, people come straight back into the stores. Sure. So I think what, you know, looking at it today, there is a systemic shift. We have roughly... You know, it's twice as big as a share of my business is online. But people love coming into the stores. As I jokingly say, they, a lot of our customers are men. Actually, sixty percent of our customers are men. Men by sixty percent. Women. These sixty percent. Wow. These poor souls need help. <laughs> that's why they love our stores. I can say that being a man, so nobody yep. gets offended. But this is true. They love coming into our stores, and, uh, and they'll, they'll and still fact, find a way to get offended. <laughs> Believe you me. But I think it's uh, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And, of course, um, a really interesting uh, business model to watch as we went into lockdown, came out of lockdown. I think Pandora is really a... Um, a, a uh, really, one one of the one of the most interesting businesses because of your connection to travel, because of your connection to um, excess cash, and because of um, you know jewelries and uh, supply chains and commodities, just such an interesting thing. Alexander, thanks so much for joining us. Alexander Lasik, there, the CEO of Pandora. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.